for one week to have sole custody of our only granddaughter <laughs> who just turned one. Uh, I don't know who to pray for more, Karen, because she's got responsibility until next Saturday of a one-year-old, Karis, because things are going to be changing for her, or probably mostly Brittany, her mom, because she's very attached. Uh, many of you know our oldest son, Wilson, is a youth minister. They're going to be going to South Carolina, and uh, Brittany is going with them. The first time I think she's been gone more than maybe 24 or 36 hours uh, from them. So pray for Karen. I'm just praying everything will be safe, you know. But anyway, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to begin reading in verse 1. We've been in 1 Timothy. Uh, you know, as you're turning there, I was amused this past week to read a job description for a pastor that was developed and posted a number of years ago in the Christian Beacon. It was said that a lot of research went into this, but it had what the model pastor should be. It says, a model pastor has been found to suit everyone. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and sits down. Boy, we could stop at that, couldn't we? He condemns sin but never offends anyone. He works from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., in areas from custodial service to preaching. He tithes regularly and is always ready to give to the special offering. Furthermore, he's 26 years old with 30 years preaching experience. <laughs> he's tall and short, thin and heavy set, one brown eye, one blue eye. His hair is parted down the middle to the left and to the right. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and also spends all of his time with the elderly. He smiles with a straight face. He makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched, yet is never out of his office. As I read this, all I have to say is be glad, Matt, these aren't our requirements for you. And this is your first day. At least I don't think so. But we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look today at the qualifications of the pastor and he begins in verse 1 first timothy 3 this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to be an overseer he desires a noble work an overseer there therefore must be above reproach the husband of one wife self-controlled sensible respectable hospitable able to teach not an excessive drinker not a bully but gentle not quarrelsome not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. Let us pray. Father, as we look at the qualifications of an overseer today, I pray, God, that you would speak your truth. Father, we know that pastors aren't perfect. I'm a testament to that. But, Father, we also know that there are specific attributes that are expected of someone who would aspire to the position of a senior pastor. We know, Lord, primarily in that is the call of God. Apart from anything, the most important thing is that. And, Lord, we 
attest to that today, but also it's very appropriate to look at your word and what Paul has to say to young Timothy of um, what is expected of the pastor. And so, Lord, open our eyes to the truth today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in all seriousness, where do we find expectations for the pastor of the local church? And for that matter, what about uh, the deacons who serve as leaders? We don't have the time today to look at uh, the subject matter of deacons, but today we're going to look at uh, the pastor. We're going to spend time not extensively looking at the work of the pastor, but we're going to look at what are in Scripture the qualifications expected of uh, the pastorate. You know, we in the Baptist church, we have our Sunday school uh, we have our, our teachers in there, we have our committees, we have many people who labor hard, yet in the Baptist church we understand that there are two God-ordained offices of ministry, that of the pastor and that of the deacon. These are uh, God-ordained positions. God calls individuals into this. As we're continuing our study in First Timothy, we come to chapter 3, and we see that our God of order that we have agreed on as we looked last week, God is a God of order. He ordered creation. He orders days. He is a God not of disorder but order. Also has a prescribed order for governance in the church. And unlike the unreal earlier description, we see that the while the standards and expectations of the pastorate are high, they are not unattainable or unreasonable. In fact, if a church is seeking to call someone into the pastorate, they should begin by looking at these qualities that are expected of one who would lead in the church. So I want to look at the two positions, but again, I, I knew last week as I, I was beginning this subject, if you remember I said over the next week or two, I had a feeling it would take two weeks to do this, and so we're going to look at the opposite office of senior pastor today and then deacons next week. First, what does God expect of the pastor? In verse 1, we see this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Now, this word for overseer in the Greek is the word episkopoi. You may say, well, that makes sense. I've heard of the Episcopal Church, but literally what it means is an overseer, and it speaks to one who is given spiritual and administrative oversight in the local church. Uh, we sometimes translate the word in our language bishop, and really we have no position of bishop in the Baptist church. So does this mean that this part of Scripture does not address us? Well, the simple answer to that is no, because it does speak to us as Baptists. You know, every once in a while I come across a book that I wish I had read about two decades earlier, and such is the case with a book I purchased at a used bookstore in Lynchburg uh, just about two months ago. It was written by a man named John Hammett, and it's called Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, a Contemporary Ecclesiology. Basically, it speaks about the church, the Baptist church, from scriptural perspective. 
And as I began to read that, I said, had this book been written 20 years earlier, it was written in 2005, but had it been written in 1985, I'm sure it would have been required uh, material for us to read at the seminary that I attended. But one particular chapter of the book, Hammett addresses and draws attention to the first two verses of 1 Peter 5 to show how this title here in 1 Timothy and also what is mentioned in 1 Peter 5 speaks to us as Baptists. In fact, in the first two verses, we see interchangeably used overseer, which is the word here, elder, which is another word used for leadership, and pastor or pastorate. In fact, he, he tells us in the first couple of verses of 1 Peter 5, he speaks of the elders shepherding, which is the concept of pastor, all right, shepherding um, the church and then overseeing its ministry. And his argument, and I believe very soundly biblically, was that the term overseer and the term of pastorate or pastoring and elder, while they may not all be exactly right uh, in line, that they do in this case speak to one distinct position. And so the question, if this is speaking of the senior pastor, and I believe the one given spiritual oversight of the local church, what is the responsibility, or more importantly, what are the qualifications of one who might aspire who, who, or who might consider to be in the pastor. I want to look at six categories this morning, and, and we're going to have subgroupings under each category, and you can see with that many categories how we couldn't fit it in in uh, other uh, today. But first we see his character. What is to be the character of the senior pastor? It begins in verse 2, an overseer therefore must, that's a word of necessity, must be above reproach. He, he's speaking here in the moral sense, in the sense of character, that one should not be able to point the finger at one aspiring into the pastorate and say that person is a sorry individual. It literally means to be above reproach, literally means not to be taken hold of. That is, no one should be able to take hold and say that individual is unfit. He moves on to say in verse 2 that he is to be self-controlled. That is not a rash acting person. A person who acts rashly is not to, to uh, uh, that, that leader is not to be that. Also sensible. And that idea of sensible means right after self-control means well-balanced. In other words, God is, is a God of order. And while I may not be too well-balanced when I'm carrying on the role of Bob Barker and I get carried away, really the, the, in the pastorate, as the pastor leads, he's not to, to be uh, unbalanced. Respectable. His outward life should reflect an orderly inward life. So as we begin to look at this, then we see that the responsibility of the local church to understand this. Um, and as we know, churches in our area that are, are looking at potential uh, pastors, they should be focused on this and pray for discernment 
And, and so we see not only his character, but secondly, his conduct, his conduct. How should he conduct himself? Years ago, um, I was uh, playing basketball with a group of friends, and there was a mixed group of believers and unbelievers in this group, and we were playing on one end, and another group was playing on the other end, and all of a sudden, there was this big raucous, and it was so loud. You know how you see something happening over there, and then your group that is consumed, they stop. And so we finished the game, and my friend, who was not a believer, said, Rick, who is that guy over there that got into all that ruckus? And I hated to tell him he was a pastor. The conduct of a pastor is essential that it be right. The pastor is not to be quarrelsome, but gentle. He's not to be a contentious type of personality. While he should stand strong on convictions, the strength of the stand is on the authority of God's word. You know, a lot of times we can get ourselves in trouble in the name of the Lord by trying to assert ourselves rather than to stand on the convictions of God's word. So while the pastor is to be bold in standing on the truth of God, he's not to be the type of person looking to get in conflict with others. He's not to be an excessive drinker. I've not drank a drop of alcohol in 35 years, and if you're counting, that's five years longer than I've been in the pastorate, okay? I'm not here to judge people on social drinking. I don't see the Scripture warns against excessive drinking. I will say this. I teetotally abstain. Why do I teetotally abstain? I don't want anybody to see me taking a social drink and thinking that I um, affirm that. I don't want to be a stumbling block to someone. Now, the Bible speaks against excessive drink, but for me, when I take one drink, it would, take, it would be leading to a second drink. So as I look at that, the Bible is very clear that we're to avoid excessive drinking, that it's wrong, it's a sin, it lacks self-control. When it comes to the matter of personally whether you take a social drink that's for you to understand in your own conviction and you're to understand, too, that in the public setting, you're a representative of Christ. And so God will lead in that. But his conduct is he's not to be an excessive drinker. He's not to be a bully. It says it there in, in the translation that I'm reading from here in verse three, right after that. It, it literally means a striker, somebody who is like a bull in a china shop, but you know, many times the, the Bible may speak symbolically of an attitude. For instance, you can be a bully by physically trying to impose your will on somebody. I don't think I would do that great at that because I'm not even six feet tall. But really with bully here, what it speaks to is an attitude of, you, you've heard of the term being a bully in the pulpit. In other words, having an agenda, trying to coerce people to do what you want to do rather than what the Word of God is and trying to use the pulpit or use the position in order to coerce people. The Scripture says the minister is not to be that way. He's not to, to use one of the great words of advice I received from my mentor, Gene Mims, is he said, don't go into the pulpit with an agenda. Go with God's agenda. Do what God tells you to do, not what you think uh, you have to do. And so uh, the minister is not to, to intimidate or, or to use 
coercion in a, in a negative way in, in, in order to establish uh, his own way. And finally, we see conduct-wise, he's to be hospitable. He is to, and the idea is this, caring for people. I, I heard a pastor once say, I love the ministry if it weren't for the people. And I said, whoa. Needless to say, he pastored a church of about 2,000, so he didn't need to see everybody, but he literally said that, and I guess maybe he was frustrated at that moment, but the fact of the matter is the ministry is the people. Uh, one who, who aspires, who is called to the pastorate should love people, should love the flock, should tend to the flock, and his conduct should uh, depict that. But then we see not only his character, his conduct, but third, his motivation. What is to be the driving force of a minister? When I was in seminary, I saw a lot of great young preachers, and, and I thought, boy, those guys can preach. But there were sometimes that thought, are they really preaching Christ or are they preaching themselves? And some of them, you could see how they dressed, how they presented themselves. They wanted to go up the ladder. That was the goal. Their motivation was to preach to the largest of people, to be in the highest of, of ivory tower. And that's not what is supposed to be true of the pastor. First, we see he's not to be motivated by desire to acquire money. It says at the end of verse 3, right after not quarrelsome, he is not to be greedy. In other words, the scripture says, Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. If the minister is motivated by acquiring money, then he would be tempted to what? Water down the word of God. He would be tempted in such ways that it may conflict with the call of God. And so it doesn't mean that the minister shouldn't be paid. I'm glad about that. It doesn't mean that the minister shouldn't try to be a good steward of money, but the minister should not be controlled by money. He should be controlled by the call of God. But not only that, he should not be motivated by desire to promote himself. We see uh, in verse 6, he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. I, I laughed years ago. Um, we had a youth group, and one of our youth came from another area church. I won't mention the name of the church, but she was a teenager, and she was an elder in her church. And I was thinking, whoa. And my friend said one of the most funny, famous lines. He said, she's not an elder. She's a younger. <laughs> but an elder... A, a, an overseer, a pastor, should not be a new convert. Notice the warning. Why? Because he might become conceited. How many times, older people, have you had a life experience and you've talked to a young person and that person is just fully convinced he or she is right and you're thinking you haven't lived long enough to see it. And he says that not to be a new convert, and, and that means literally newly planted, um, because he would incur the same condemnation of the devil. What did the devil do? The devil thought he knew better than the Lord knew. And so what did he do? He rebelled. And so there's this seasoning, this testing. Now, as I thought back, I've been here 30 years. I'm thankful that this church took a chance on a younger minister. I've learned a lot. 
But one thing we, we would say is even though we've called younger ministers and the history of this church has been to call younger ministers, they have gone through times of training. They have gone through biblical training. They've gone through pastoral training, through seminary, through education. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't say let's just throw out anybody who's 30 years old, but I would say this as I look back at my own life, the church that calls a younger pastor has a responsibility to sort of oversee uh, that individual to encourage in a, in a humble way. And this church has done a, a great job uh, in that. But then we see not only um, his motivation not to be motivated by money, not to be motivated in youthful pride to assert himself, but we see not only his motivation, but fourth, his family, his relationship both with his wife and his children. The scripture says he is to be a husband of one wife. He is to be faithful to the wife of his youth. He is to manage his family and his children well. That's a responsibility. And so if a church were to be looking at a pastor, one of the things they would look at, the individual's wife, the individual's family. Now, each person is responsible for his or her own life. And once children come out of the household, there's a time we release them and they make the decisions. But I think you understand uh, where we're going in this. And I can't preach from this without saying how thankful I am for my wife, who's not only a, a beautiful person inside and out, but is a tremendous asset to my ministry. I, I, I know individuals who could not stay in the pastorate because their wife had nothing to do with the ministry. They had pulled away. And so it's important to look at the family. It's important for the candidate to consider his own family. And I've been blessed. God called my wife to be a pastor's wife about eight years before she ever met me. She felt a, now not every pastor's wife is that way, but I feel double blessed in that measure and so the point is this the responsibility that the pastor has with his family to be faithful to his family faithful to his wife his children his wife i believe in understanding supporting the ministry but then we see uh fifth his reputation and I almost hate to use the word reputation because sometimes it can be misused. Character is more important than reputation. Reputation is what people think of you. Character is who you truly are. But I will add this, Paul included it here for a very important reason, because a minister of ill repute is a devastating negative witness in a community. I want to say that again, a minister of ill repute to those outside of the congregation is a devastating negative witness in the community. The word outsiders there in verse 7, it speaks to people outside of the local church, and I believe specifically unbelievers, those who do not believe on the Lord. In other words, the minister should have such a reputation that he's a believer in the Lord, okay? And by the way, this is true for every person who would call himself, herself, a Christian. And I wonder if, the, and I'm sure you've probably been there, have you ever tried to talk to someone about the Lord 
or convince them to come into the fellowship of the church. And you do that, and then you begin to hear about a past bad experience that individual had at a church. And you're thinking, I'm fighting an uphill battle because of the attitudes of people who profess Christ, the ways uh, how people treated them have brought a negative concept. And so this isn't only true for us as pastors, those of us who are called to be pastors, but every Christian should seek to be a positive witness. You know, I was thinking, and Randy shared with me, and, and I appreciate him remembering this policy that we've had over the years with the youth ministry. It may sound simple, but hopefully you'll uh, understand where I'm going with this. But when we take a group, and we're at a McDonald's or a Burger King, we always say, step back, kids, and let an individual. Have you ever gone to a fast food restaurant and you see a bus in the parking lot and you said, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. But we have a policy with our youth ministry that when we see a couple come in, we step back and you go in front. You know why we do that? We do that because they see our group get in Concord Baptist Church van. And that might be one positive reflection on them that they see, you know, these people are thinking of me and not themselves. And the girls did that. And Randy shared, I think it opened up a witnessing opportunity uh, for someone who was surprised that a group would do that. What, what does that mean? The reputation with outsiders that we don't do it to dress ourselves up. We do it to be a, a, a positive reflection um, on the Lord. The final thing, the sixth thing, the pastor's gifts or gift specifically. A pastor may have more than one gift, but we see there's one specific gift listed here. Now, next week we're going to look at the office of the deacon, and we're going to see there are a lot of similarities, but there's one significant di distinction between the deacon and the overseer or the pastor, and it's this. The overseer, the pastor, must be able to teach, must be able to preach. You know, my friend Bruce Larson, who was in Buckingham years ago, well, we have so many funny experiences from Fort Worth and here. And years ago, we witnessed a funny story that one of our friends told us about himself. And this friend was going to preach in view of a call to two churches. What that meant in the Baptist church, he was going to preach before a committee in two different churches that were tied together as one church field. And so he would preach at both churches, and after he left, the churches would vote whether to call him to be uh, their next pastor. Now, uh, Bruce's and my friend was very inexperienced and it had not had uh, much experience preaching. He was very nervous, but he got through the message. And on the ride home, he was riding with his wife, sort of reflecting on it. And he asked his wife, he said, well, how do you think I, do? I did? And the wife said, well, I heard your first message. I thought it was the worst message I ever heard in my life until you preached the second one. <laughs> he told that on himself. That is a true story. His wife told him that. I've lost touch with that pastor. I know he has a pastor's heart. And as is the case with all of us that are young, we grow and develop in it. But it's required 
to teach. You wouldn't call a basketball coach to coach basketball if he'd never thought about it or, or played it. You wouldn't call a welder to be a welding instructor if he'd never welded himself. And, and so as you look at that, th- one of the requirements of a pastor, he must be able to teach. It doesn't speak to a particular style, but he must be able to teach and to preach the word. You know, I want to close this section on the office of, of pastor with this thought. There is a very important added thing to this. Paul is instructing Timothy about the qualifications of a pastor. And what he's saying is, you know, if there's someone that comes to you that says, I, I feel called to be the spiritual leader, the overseer of this particular house church in that context or whatever, Paul is giving him the criteria to, to observe. But at the core of the pastorate is a call to ministry. When I responded to the call to ministry uh, over 30-some years ago, I was at a camp in Cleveland, Tennessee. And when I was at that camp, I'll never forget, the gentleman tried to talk me out of it. And he did this. He said, if you can do anything else and be contented, do it. It's not, can I do it? It's can I not not do it. In other words, it's not, is this something I can do, but it's something that I must do. That's the call of God. And that's what keeps a pastor getting up on Monday mornings and pushing through. That's what keeps the, the, the pastor going. And we've got a young um, man coming and working with us now. And Matt, that's, that's what it, it all gets back to the call of God. But along with those calls, that individuals have is, is these requirements, these expectations that should accompany, Paul, uh, should accompany the ministry. And that's what Paul is writing here. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you're a God of order. And Lord, uh, for some of us, we will take time this week going back over these qualities and these attributes. Father, we thank you that you have called individuals into the ministry. We thank you for bringing a young man who is training for ministry, who has had experience in ministry, and who is coming to work among us. We thank you for your call upon his life. Lord, use us to encourage him, um, to be a support to him. And uh, Father, as he seeks to do your uh, ministry. And Father, there may be some within this ministry right now, maybe young or old alike, that you're calling into the pastorate. Lord, only you have that right and authority to call. But Lord, as you call them, we know that these attributes are so important in the life of a pastor. Father, we love you. We thank you for this wonderful day, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.